And Hebrews 2020 today, we see Jesus. This is increment 106, and I'm going to simply call it Hologos to Theu part 5. The Word of God, can't say enough about it. And today's message is officially for March 10th. 2021, and it has been a year, one year, since we parted from one another for the Jubilee years already, and I'm pretty sure the last message that we had while together here physically in this Alamo building was on March 11th. We'll have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your unrelenting fidelity, mercy, love. And we ask now that a very bold thing, that you would, during this time of many crises in our nation and across this world, initiate an era of miracles, that you will initiate a time of extraordinary divine intervention. We're not asking unrealistically, because we know that your providence is an ongoing miracle, sometimes quietly engineering history and only the most astute recognize your movements but I ask Father that you will initiate more dramatic movements of your spirit unto healing unto restoration unto reconciliation of relationships of peoples and people groups and most of all, unto a proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery, a gospel that truly gives hope, a hope that is not ashamed, a hope that becomes a gateway for the love of God to be demonstrated. I ask this, Father, and I ask you now, knowing that you traffic normally and naturally in the realm of the supernatural, that you'll awaken us even through this message and awaken many so that Christ will shine upon us in new and extraordinary ways. May we never think we've got everything in a lock or knocked. May we think rather that there is so much more to come and so much more to be revealed. Grant us the extraordinary gift of humility and gratitude, for those are the keys and the secrets of true happiness. Open the eyes of our hearts today, Father, that we may truly see Jesus and that we may also recognize that Jesus sees us. We thank you for this privilege in his name. Amen. Hebrews 4.12 and 13. Here is a working translation serviceable for our needs right now. Indeed, the word of God, that's our title for the past several messages, or at least several of them, Halagas Tutha'u is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit and of nerve fibers and myelin. And it's able to judge and by that is meant critically assess the deliberations and determinations of the heart, the rational, intentional consciousness of man. 
for there is no created being. And the emphasis is start going to start to fall upon this verse. There is no created being who isn't naked and completely exposed to the eyes of him to whom we are accountable. A more detailed translation of that verse begins in verse 13 with, There is no created being that is hidden from his sight. Our series is called, We See Jesus. Here we have the patent declaration that Jesus sees us. Sees us in a way that only a divine person can see us. Only a divine and human person can see us. Again, the emphasis will fall more heavily on this verse. There is no created being that is hidden from his sight. Everything and every being in creation is naked and exposed, laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we are accountable, to whom we will give an account. Now that word lagas for word, referring to the word of God, in Hebrews 4.12 is also used in 4.13. Only it's translated differently and it means account an accounting or giving an account. So there is a play on words and there is a connectedness of these two verses. The word of God in verse 12 and the account that we must give to God. Both are translated as logos. And I think as we go along in our exposition of this, we'll see just how that connection has meaning and application to us. Now, since the word of God is living and operational in an ongoing way, as the tenses make clear in this Hebrews 4.12, we can easily surmise from it that it is vitally relevant and currently operational on the level of our own time. I even have something that is an abbreviation I use in my notes for on the level of our own time. I call it atlat, on the level of our time. And we dealt with that at the end of Revelation. In fact, I think Revelation 5.14, the 514th increment of Revelation, I believe, has to do with just that, on the level of our time. And there are many linkages in that message. I recommend you might want to listen to it if you wish. Revelation 5.14, many linkages to our present series in Hebrews. There's a lot of commonality between what was going on when the churches in Western Asia received the Apocalypse of John and when the church, wherever it was, possibly even in Judea or in Jerusalem itself, that received the message of the homily called Hebrews. There's a lot of commonality. One difference is, one distinction is, in Revelation we hear of many martyrs, martyrs, people that have already been executed, slaughtered, butchered, killed, for their faith and for the maintenance of their testimony, maintaining and holding on to their testimony of the word and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews, we have Hebrews 12.4, many had not yet resisted sin or resisted the compromise of their testimony to the point of shedding blood. So there is that distinction showing that Hebrews may have been written just slightly earlier 
than Revelation. And I think Revelation was written pretty much right on the cusp of the events in A.D. 70 and the catastrophic events. But during times of catastrophe, there's also a counterbalancing of divine miraculous intervention. The ultimate, incidentally, speaking of miracles, the ultimate restoration of all things is going to be a miracle of grace. There's not going to be any human or social or political or military means of bringing that about. It's going to be brought about by a fiat of divine, miraculous grace. And we're already in a time in history where sometimes history being brought up from declines can only be brought up by the intervention, miraculous intervention, of divine grace. And in miraculous interventions... That which is normally providential and often undetected emerges into something that's far more dramatic and seen even by eyes of people who are unbelievers. I'm not sure exactly why I said that today, but I've been meditating on it and thinking about it, and maybe it's because I have in my soul an inherent hopefulness that's connected to a faith that God has ignited in me, I guess. I guess that's what it is. But since the Word of God is living in operation in an ongoing way and on the level of our own times, we can easily surmise that it is still vitally, crucially relevant on the level of our time. Even though our specific historical situation differs from the situations into which the Word of God was first spoken during the time of the actual writing, for example, of the New Testament. Though historical and cultural scenarios change, in fact, they're quite always in flux, the Word of God remains the same as does the accountability of the creature to our maker. I'll say that again. Though historical and cultural scenarios change, the word of God remains the same, as does the accountability of the creature to its maker. However we want to run, however fig leaves we might want to sow, we might be able to sow fig leaves into a bespoke suit, but we still are accountable to our maker. And he sees right through that suit, he sees right through the skin, he sees right into the heart and the soul of man. God isn't at all interested in the epidermis color like people are today who are not only superficial but racist. They believe in a racist theory of history. All racist theories of history fail. There's no way to view history properly through the lens of race or of racism. One thing you can be sure of, God sees right through the epidermis into the deliberations and determinations of the heart. And another thing that's very sure, all of us are accountable to him, even if you don't believe in him. You think that moves God? That you don't believe in him, that you don't believe in his existence. Whether you believe in his existence or not, you're accountable to him, and so am I. And as a pastor, I'm accountable for every word I say from this pulpit. And there are many times I've said words that have been not directed by the Holy Spirit, and he takes me to task in prayer afterwards, or in sometimes days afterwards. So thank God that we give an account to him now 
We do that when we acknowledge our sins. We give an account of ourselves when we sin. Otherwise, we live in self-justification. A society that lives in self-justification is a society that's in decline. A civilization, so-called, that lives in the self-deception of self-justification is on the decline. A society that lives in self-justification deceives itself and lives in such a self-absorption that it becomes a narcissistic self-love. And a culture of narcissism, as Christopher Lash once famously called it in his book, a culture of narcissism is on the slide and is sliding down a mudslide like an otter. And that is what 2 Timothy 3, 2 calls lovers of self more than lovers of God. Now, though historical and cultural scenarios change, this isn't the first time, for example, that there's been a thing called cancel culture. The cancel culture was alive and well back in the days when this Christological homily called Hebrews was written to a group of people in a house church, perhaps. Perhaps somewhere in Turkey, perhaps somewhere in the Roman Empire, perhaps right in the environs of Jerusalem itself. Paul was certainly canceled. The whole city of Jerusalem wanted him dead. That is, the vast majority of the populace wanted him dead and didn't think he was worthy of drawing breath again. Read Acts 21 sometime. Acts 22. Read it. Cancellation even took the form of crucifixion of the Son of God. Now, though historical and cultural scenarios change, the Word of God remains the same, as does the accountability of the creature to the Creator. At the time of the writing of Hebrews, there was a specific historical and even a prophetical scenario going on. In fact, there was a great division occurring between the temple and the community of believers, community in Christ. A call, a summons was being issued by the Holy Spirit through the author of Hebrews to his readers, which required them to spiritually distance from the physical temple with its ongoing system of sacrifices. It was called the first system in Hebrews 10.9. I suspect... The many uses of the word second, deuteros, D-E-U-T-E-R-O-S in Hebrews, deuteros, I think the accent would be here. The many references to that show that Hebrews has an affinity with the book of Deuteronomy, or the second giving of the law. The word, the second, for example, in Hebrews 10.9, a second system, or a second Reality, determined by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, took over the first, the protos system. And the first was canceled to bring on the second. A whole new way of living, a whole new and living way had entered with the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're going to look maybe controversially into Hebrews chapter 10. I'm kind of going off script today, so... The notes for today's message might not, man, not, might not match the audio if you're listening. But 
the great sacrifice and the once and for all sacrifice of Christ brought forth something that's a new and living way. And again, I say there's a controversy in Hebrews 10.22, for example, where it says our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with our bodies washed with pure water. Now, many people want to relate that to a sacramental and traditional way of viewing it, and that it refers to baptism. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't allude to it, but I may suggest something a little more controversial. What if it doesn't? What if the new, new and living way doesn't have to involve water baptism? What if it doesn't have to? What if the bodies washed with pure water rather refer to the bathing that the priests had to go through with pure water before putting on their priestly garments and serving in the temple at the altar? What if there's an allusion to us being washed by the pure water our bodies or our whole beings being washed by the pure water of the word of God, the sanctifying word of God in Ephesians 5.26, by which we are made clean in John 15.3 through the word that was spoken to us by Jesus Christ, made clean. And what if the water of the word is being spoken of? What if the water of the word is referring to the procession of the Holy Spirit from the throne of God and the Lamb as a crystal clear river of life? What if we're talking about us being bathed, body, soul, and spirit by the word there and able to enter into the heavenly holy of holies as a new era of priests, a new kind of priesthood under a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek? What if it's saying that? What, what if it isn't talking about a sacramental interpretation of the scripture? What if the new and living way inaugurated through the blood of Jesus Christ and the torn veil of his flesh brought us into a new and living reality in which we did not have to engage in any kind of ritual? What if that was the case? I'm just suggesting that. I'm just suggesting. The deuteros, the second... Deuteros is also used in Hebrews 9.28. He who appeared once and for all at the junction of the ages, the junction of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, he will come a second time, Deuteros, a second time, without sin, meaning without having to deal with sin because he dealt with it once and for all at the junction of the ages at the cross. Once and for all with salvation, it says, for all who are waiting for him. You say, well, that just means a group of Christians who are waiting for him. No, the Bible says elsewhere that the all of creation's waiting for him. All of creation's waiting for him. What are you going to do with that? Is that controversial? That when he comes, he'll bring salvation for all of creation, including part of the creation. I know this is humbling. Part of creation called you and me and humanity in general. Well, I'm just doing this to challenge you in love today. Now, getting us back down to the earth to walk on terra firma and look at the historical situation into which Hebrews was spoken, at the time of the writing, I'm repeating, there was a great division between the temple and the community. A summons was being issued by the Holy Spirit through the author of Hebrews called a heavenly summons in Hebrews 3.1. And I think it had to do with spiritually distant, not social distance, spiritual distance 
from the physical temple with its ongoing system of sacrifices. And because I believe this was written before A.D. 70, there's actually a warning about physically distancing from the temple because the temple was going to be destroyed and the destruction of the temple was forecasted in a speech act, a kind of living parable and forecast when Jesus himself cleanse the temple. That was more than just kicking over a couple of money tables. That was taking over the temple in what would have been considered by the Pharisees at that time a, an insurrection that demanded the death penalty. He took over the temple complex with his disciples and what happened as a result of that was the cessation of sacrifices, a cessation of sacrifices. Now, this was symbolic of two things, the cessation of animal sacrifices because of the once and for all and forever sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross in A.D. 30, and the cessation of animal sacrifices in A.D. 70 that would have been necessitated by the destruction of the temple and by the fulfillment of Jesus' words in Matthew 15, 14, where he says, Woe to the blind leaders of the blind. Blind leaders of the blind. Kind of like scientism leading its sycophants. The blind leaders of the blind shall both enter into the ditch. They end up in the ditch. The ditch he's talking about there is the valley of Hinnom, called Gehenna. He's talking about the destruction of A.D. 70. For those who did not, what? Spiritually distance themselves from the temple and ultimately even physically distance themselves from the temple in Jerusalem and from the first system of sacrifices. Now, we're going to enter into what I call, well, I don't call it that. Lonergan called it that. Many call it that. It's dialectics. I always use the Greek delta when I write it because it's a, one of the nine theological functional specialties. Dialectics. And dialectics is when, well, I've said it before. I read Kenneth Wiest. I kind of took his take on Hebrews I spent another 40 years studying the scriptures since then. I came up with a different, slightly different viewpoint than Kenneth Wiest. So now Kenneth S. Wiest and me, A-R-K, are in a dialectical relationship. I don't agree with everything, but I can have a conversation with him back and forth. Agree with this, disagree with this. Dialectics, it, be, it really yields a lot of fruit. And so a lot of the theologians I studied and people that I studied under, I now have a dialectic relationship with them. And it means it's, a, it's one of the functional specialties of theology. So I'm going to have a dialectical discussion with Richard Bauckham, with whom I have great affinity on most issues and whom I admire as a scholar with far more credentials than, than I have. But we're going to get into this in a moment. This spiritual distancing from the physical temple with its ongoing system of sacrifices was occurring. This spiritual distancing resonates with that which Richard Bauckham described as, quote, the social strategy of the book of Revelation, saying that it is a call to radical dissociation from structural evil. Again, I recommend Revelation lesson number 514. I'm almost positive that's where it was found. That quote, the call of John in his apocalypse to the seven churches in Western Asia Minor or Turkey at the time was a call to radical dissociation from structural evil. I think today we have to have a radical dissociation from ideological evil, as well as from winds of doctrine that are making Christians get tossed to and fro, as well as from the evil doctrines that people are putting together to try to falsely 
relate the events in Revelation to our present time in a way that causes panic and confusion among believers. I think we have to dissociate ourselves from radical ideologies, whether right or left ideologies, as they're called today. I think we even have to radically dissociate ourselves from any kind of racist or even racial interpretation of history. There's a lot of other things we should radically dissociate ourselves from today. Religious evil. For there is a kind of evil fundamentalism in many world religions. And there is a religiosity even within the camp of Christendom that fails to distinguish between a crass literalism in the interpretation of the scripture and a metaphorical and figurative style which the spiritual person would recognize in the study of the scriptures because the Holy Spirit teaches us and when he teaches us he shows us the meaning of parabolic, metaphorical, figurative, poetical expressions. And he teaches us when to take parts and segments of the scripture that are intended to be taken literally, literally. When Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he wasn't speaking literally. When Paul said, bring me my parchments, he was speaking literally. He wasn't saying, bring me my figurative parchments. Now, when the word of God divides between soul and spirit, what it also does is gives us the ability to distinguish between the figurative and the literal. That would solve 90% of the problems of biblical interpretation. Interpretation happens to be another of the nine theological functional specialties that we have to deploy in an exegesis like we're doing of Hebrews, a theological exegesis. Now, not too unlike the so-called structural evil, I'm using again a phrase from Bauckham in his book, The Climax of Prophecy. I believe it's The Climax of Prophecy, a wonderful book, a wonderful teaching on revelation. His book called The Climax of Prophecy paired with his book called The Theology of the Book of Revelation, which is simpler and shorter, is a great way to travel through Revelation, if you're interested. But not too unlike the structural evil from which the recipients of John's apocalypse were called away from, the recipients of Hebrews were summoned to, and this is so very vital and important, to go outside the camp to Christ. Not just to go outside the camp so that you can claim to be an outsider, but we're going to Christ who happens to be outside the camp, which is for us really outside of ourselves, outside of Adamic ontology, outside of religious evil and distorted ideology revisionist history, a lot of other things going on today in our country and across the world. Lots of propaganda circulating right now. And propaganda is intended to enslave while the gospel is intended to liberate and emancipate. The recipients of Hebrews were summoned to go outside the camp to Christ bearing his reproach. So are we. The camp may be different. The historical scenario may be different, but we're all called to go out of ourselves to Christ 
and to bear the reproach of Christ, which means to bear the inevitable cancellation culture's response to our doing that. That's Hebrews 13, 13, incidentally. The difference between Revelation and Hebrews, as I suggested before, the difference between John's apocalypse and this heavenly homily called Hebrews, and there are many likenesses, but one of the differences is that the saints addressed in Hebrews had not yet resisted the compromise of their confession or sin to the point of martyrdom or death as Hebrews 12.4 calls it, figuratively speaking, resisted unto blood, which can be also literal in resisting sin. While in Revelation, through the lens of the Spirit, we see, quote, the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the witness which they kept. These souls are pictured as underneath the altar or better at the foot of the altar. At the foot of the altar is where the blood of the sacrificial lamb was spattered. At the foot of the altar is a, an apocalyptic picture of countless martyrs that had been slaughtered like lambs, like sacrificial lambs, but slaughtered for their faith and for their testimony that they held to and didn't give up. Revelation 6, 9. The camp that they were to exit in Hebrews had become a structure of evil. That evil was created by the complicity, a big word lately in our political circles in America has been collusion, a collusion or a complicity, or you can call it a conspiracy, of an abrogated order, religious order, with a bestial, tyrannical government. Then it was apostate Jerusalem, and the Sanhedrin and leadership of Jerusalem in an illicit union with the Roman beast. John satirized apostate Jerusalem as being Sodom and Egypt, and then he kind of did a political cartoon or a satire of Jerusalem as the whore of Babylon. And so the illicit union of the Roman beast with the whore of Babylon created that structural evil from which they were to dissociate themselves. At the time, John again satirized that depiction or satirized that union with a depiction of a whore riding on a beast. And I don't have to get into the suggestiveness of that image. It's not too pretty. Now, apostate Jerusalem, as opposed to Jerusalem itself, a city, a holy city of God, a set-apart city of God, under a leadership who had distorted Judaism had a pledge of allegiance that they said publicly. That pledge of allegiance was pronounced dramatically after insisting on the crucifixion of the great king, Jesus, their true king. Now, I think this is a very pivotal passage in John 19.15 for many reasons. John 19.15 ironically reveals who Jesus is as the great king. 
It also exposes the hearts. Speaking of Ephesians or of Hebrews 4:12 and 13, it exposes the hearts of the crowd in Jerusalem who were urged on in a mob action by their spiritually blind and hardened leaders. It says, quote, they cried out loudly to Pilate, the representative of the beast in Rome, the procurator in Judea. They cried out to him, take him away. Speaking of Jesus, take him away. They kept chanting it. Then they said, crucify him. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the representative of the beast, replied this, shall I crucify your king? Now that, you can hit that from so many different levels and angles and perspectives that it would take, you could write a book that would be 300 pages long. Shall I crucify your king? Did Pilate actually think Jesus was the king of the Jews? Did Pilate sarcastically refer to him as king? Was Pilate rationalizing the fact that he made him, that Jesus made himself a king so he might have to crucify him? Some historical records seem to suggest that Pilate became a believer later on. I don't know. I never verified that. Be interesting if someone could. Take him away, take him away, crucify him. So, shall I crucify your king? Pilate had the authority to call for that or not. Now, of all people, the people within that crowd answered him, and they were the archpriests, the high priests. The archpriests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now, if that didn't reveal a pledge of allegiance and a, an illicit union of political evil with religious apostasy, I don't know what does. The high priests. Now, why am I accentuating the archpriests or the high priests in John 19.15 who call for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Because our passage is ready to go into 4.14 that reveals Jesus, the Son of God, to be the great archpriest who passed through the heavens. And the confession of him is something that we should hold on to. Hold on to the ball. Don't fumble it. And run for the touchdown. This has a pathway to the central part of Hebrews where the High priesthood, the arch priesthood, I say arch priest because the Greek word is actually archieros or archierus. And so it's more accurate to say arch priest. I know we're not used to that yet. Chief priests is the King James. Arch priest is a better translation. High priest, okay. But in, that's the ruling class that called for the crucifixion of the great archpriest. And ironically, they conspired with Rome to abrogate their own system by crucifying the Lord of glory. In 1 Corinthians 2, 8, you don't think God's in control. You show me the worst things that can happen in history. I'll show you he can turn it around, in fact, transform it and transfigure it into the ultimate good. That's the law of the cross. By the law of the cross, God doesn't destroy the evils of men or the evils that men do or evil men or evil men and women. He rather converts the evil men and women and those evil events into the supreme good. 
That's God. God does that. You can't do that. I can't do that. The farthest I can go toward evil that's done to me is to avenge it. I can't restore the person that did that to me. I can't transform them into the kind of person that would think such a thing to be unthinkable. I can't do that. God can. So we're told not to overcome evil with more evil, but to overcome evil with the divine good, which is love operative through the law of the cross. So, I'll close today's message by saying this. Pilate, the representative of the beast, is the one who called Jesus the king of the Jews. Will I crucify your king? Is that what you want? This is the year of the great king, so I like the way this is playing here. They said we have no king but Caesar. But Pilate was so insistent on calling Jesus the king of the Jews that he had a placard inscribed stating just that. Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And even insisted that that placard stating that very thing and proclaiming that very thing be placed on the cross above Jesus' head. And that it would be inscribed in Latin for the Romans to read and understand, in Greek for the Greeks to read and understand, and Aramaic for the Hebrews and the Jews to understand, and the Greek-speaking, some of the Greek-speaking Jews to understand, for the whole world to understand. So the same archpriest that called for him to be taken away and crucified led hundreds of thousands of Jews onward toward the ditch. They're the blind guides. Blind people follow them. Blind people often follow blind guides. Blind guides are sometimes people who claim to have science. They are followed by sycophants that couldn't determine science and distinguish science from a flea. They follow them. They both, Jesus said, end up into the ditch. The ditch that he was claiming that they're actually proclaiming and predicting that they would end up in was the ditch around Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom, called Gehenna in other passages in the scriptures. For example, Matthew 5.29. So you'd probably want to dissociate yourselves from the temple, the physical temple at that time. You probably wanted to even socially distance from that temple. You might even want to physically distance from that temple. At that time. At that time. And from a system of temple sacrifices and celebration of daily, weekly, monthly, and annual feasts that oddly and so wonderfully but strangely had been abrogated or ended or annulled or terminated by the very act of these archpriests who insisted on crucifying the Lord of glory. If they had ever known the law of the cross and what they were instituting, the princes of this world, and that relates the princes or the kings of the earth in Psalm 2 to these very people, the archpriests in Jerusalem, and including Caiaphas and Caesar. Caiaphas and Caesar were the 
kings of the earth at that time in Psalm 2 who tried to break the bands of the anointed and of the Lord and his Christ and of course who dismally failed. So I think next time we will continue on this line and continue dialectic this time with Richard Bauckham and therefore discovered just what it was like on that level, on the level of their time, and we'll compare it a little bit to the level of our own time in increment 107, which is yet to come. So, Father, we thank you today for a sprinkling of insights from the scriptures of truth. May you grant us the grace to dissociate from the lie and to associate us, associate with the liberating truth. Free us and free our generation and the generations to come from the enslaving lie and liberate us by the liberating truth of the word, the truth that is embodied, personified, and proclaimed in Jesus Christ, your Son. Father, I thank you for your constant faithfulness to provide for families for, and for individuals and for those in our very own phalanx and to provide, and you have done so, for one year in our separation. You have provided. Your grace has provided. May the word of God, therefore, continue to go forth freely. May it continue to go forth with the power to edify and build your church. May it proceed with in-depth teaching that truly has the power to change and conform into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask this for myself. I ask this for those who are hearing this message. I ask this for my nation, my beloved country. I ask this for the nations of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.